So I'm starting in chapter 27. This is where we were last week. Morgan walked us through last week, the end of chapter 26. We saw Jesus in Gethsemane. We saw the failing of the disciples, unable to stay up and pray with him. Judas, who betrays Jesus. Jesus is then arrested. The disciples scatter. We see the trial of Jesus, a very important culmination for Matthew, because that's the place where Jesus claims to be the Messiah and the Son of God and the Son of Man, all basically the fulfillment of many things that Matthew has been building up to, and he makes a positive proclamation that he is those things, leaving no doubt, and goes further even than the question they ask him, leading the chief priest to rip his robes and say, this is blasphemy, and now we have the charge in which we can crucify Jesus. And then, of course, we have Peter's denial of Christ three times, as Jesus had predicted. So when we get to chapter 27, we're kind of wrapping up. It actually, the first two verses of chapter 27 could actually be put at the end of chapter 26. The break really doesn't make much sense because it concludes what we've just heard. Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people came to the decision to put Jesus to death. They bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. You're going to see that in chapter 27 and chapter 28, a lot of this is purely narrative. Matthew is done recording a lot of the words of Jesus. In fact, Jesus stays relatively silent. He's going to just take us home at this point to the conclusion of the crucifixion and the resurrection. Now, there's an interlude here that interrupts the story for a moment and may not be chronological, even though we have it as verse 3. At some point around this time, we have the outcome of what happens to Judas. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned... He was seized with remorse and returned the 30 silver coins to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and he hanged himself. So Judas comes to that ending by taking his own life. The chief priests picked up the coins and said, It is against the law to put this money into the treasury, since this is blood money. So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. That is why it has been called the field of blood to this day. Then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. They took the 30 pieces, or the 30 silver coins, the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field as the Lord commanded me. Matthew is citing to Jeremiah for a prophecy. I'd like to point something out because people go searching through Jeremiah to find this. You saw a couple weeks ago, I put up this part from Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 11, verses 12 and 13 is one of the chapters in Zechariah that people look to and say, this was Zechariah speaking of the messianic hope of Israel. And one of the verses in there was, I told them, If you think it best, give me my pay, but if not, keep it. So they paid me 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the handsome price at which they priced me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. You can hear the echo if you just look at this, that Matthew seems to have this in mind as he's writing this part. And you might say, well, wait a minute. He says, Jeremiah, why is Zechariah on the screen? Well, Jeremiah makes very similar comments. In fact, both Zechariah and Jeremiah, and he would probably cite the more known prophet, which is Jeremiah. And you could look at Jeremiah 19. It's too long to go into. But if you look at Jeremiah 19, there's a whole discussion about this potter's field and this field of blood. And it seems like Matthew's having these echoes. He's looking at them, whether they were predicting the Christ or whether he just says, hey, this sounds very much like the Old Testament prophecies are coming through. In fact, in Jeremiah 19, he was condemning a practice that was going on where people were actually doing pagan sacrifices, in some cases human sacrifices, in what's called the Valley of Ben-Hinnom. And people believed that the field that was purchased with the money that Judas threw back was the potter's field that was found in the Valley of Ben-Hinnom. Now, whether that's just because that's where they put all the grave sites in Jerusalem, or whether that really is Matthew trying to identify, look, some of the prophecies from Zechariah and from Jeremiah are coming to pass exactly as, we, as, as they were predicted to come to pass. 
I just want to point out that that's what he's talking about when he refers back to Jeremiah. You can look at Jeremiah 18, you can look at Jeremiah 19, but if you go there, you're not going to find a clear passage that says, and then the Messiah will be betrayed by a guy named Judas, who will get 30 pieces of silver and end up buying the potter's field. It's much more opaque than that. It takes time to kind of put together, but you have to look at all the traditions of how the Jews themselves interpreted these provisions, what they thought these prophecies meant, and through the years how they had developed to expect a certain result. And Matthew's trying to make this connection and saying, hey, look back, this is part of what was predicted earlier. You're going to see him do it in a more clear way, but I just want to point out what he's doing when he's saying, as the prophet Jeremiah said, because really he's tying in Jeremiah and Zechariah together and only citing one of them. Okay? So we have the end of Judas in this way. If you look at Acts 118, though, you'll find a little bit different end of Judas, a little bit more gory version of the end of Judas. There Judas falls headlong into the potter's field and his intestines are spilled out because he's broken. And people put those two together and say, is Matthew just kind of skipping over the gory details of something that was known about Judas, that he just hung himself, and then later somebody cut him down and that happened? What exactly is going on? But I've heard that question from people saying, is there a contradiction? It seems like they could just be, Matthew's not interested so much in Judas, he's trying to move on and get to the rest of the story. So he seems to cut out some details about the end of Judas. But if you want to read the full gory account, you can look at Acts 118 and forward. All right? Yeah. Um, just a quick question about like the Judas's response though. It seems almost repentant. Um, how is that different from like you know, Peter betraying Jesus? When you look at this, you see the words here where it says, "I have betrayed innocent blood." Right? He was seized with remorse. It says he returned the thirty silver coins. All the commentaries I looked at say that this is not equivalent to an act of true repentance. There are some differences between he and Peter. First of all, I think Peter does not kill himself and end it there at the last mistake. He is going forward even though he fails and finds a way to be restored. Okay? But I don't think it's just in the restoration that they're different. This idea of remorse, people have through the centuries tried to make that and say, I think that was repentance. But it's like, no, he just realized he had screwed up. But it didn't go to the next step. And I think we ask that question ourselves sometimes about repentance. Like, is repentance just knowing that what you've done is wrong? Or is it really changing what you've done and trying to find a different course of action? And I think this doesn't go that far. I think that's where it's different. Yeah. Paul wrote that there were two types of sorrows. When he wrote the letter, I think he was to the Corinthians, and he said, I'm glad that you guys have been convicted by my letters. And he said, because the sorrow that has come upon you has led you to repentance and all that. I believe that... And he said that there's a sorrow that is worldly and there's another sorrow which is from the Lord. I believe that maybe you just had the sorrow from the world. Yeah, maybe just uh, we say in our parlance that sometimes some of us are grieved by the consequence of our sin rather than grieved by the sin itself and that we've offended the holy God. That might be a good distinction. The, the language distinction, again, I'm not going to pretend to be a Greek scholar, but all the commentaries point out that, the, that they could have used a stronger word for remorse that would have actually implied repentance, but it really just is kind of like he just was upset by the result. You know? And people speculate, like, why is he upset by the result? Uh, maybe Judas is not as, you know, we, we speculate a couple weeks ago, why would he betray Christ? And some people said, like, maybe he was hoping that Jesus would prove himself when he's put on trial, or maybe he didn't think that it would go so far that they would actually execute him. Maybe he just thought that he'd be forced to reveal his identity or something. I don't think those are likely, but it could be the reason that he's feeling that kind of remorse there or that kind of, this didn't work out the way I wanted it to. And then, of course, rather than seeking forgiveness, some sort of change, some sort of action, you know, he just ends it, you know. Now, I don't know chronologically when Judas killed himself. Because just because of the fact that it comes in verse 3 doesn't mean that it came right after what happened in verse 2. Because Matthew often kind of takes these side detours and goes off and tells something else and then comes back to the story and it's not meant to be chronological. But I will tell you that the comment that I've seen over and over in the commentaries on Matthew is there has been a centuries-long effort to try to make this word render as, re as repent, the Greek word, and that most people have concluded it's unsupported. That's all I can tell you. I can only repeat what I've read. All right, because I'm not going to tell you that I've done any studies in the original language myself. All right, so let's leave that there and move on. But that's a good question, Ben, that you bring up because I think it's, 
important to see. And by the way, a, a lot of the commentators also point out, I think we should point out that there's, there's you know, the, the fact that he kills himself is not like the ultimate end of all things. I mean, that's for him, it's the end. You know, but it's probably the reason that he's never going to have a chance to repent is he ends it. Whether that's a cowardly act, whether it's an act of desperation, it seems like he kind of freaks out a little bit. I mean, he throws the money, and then he goes and he hangs himself. He's probably lost it a little bit, somebody would say. Yeah, Philip. Sorry, that's like, keep saying the same thing. Like, is our repentance, like, the only way that it can happen is through, like, us changing action? Like... I believe that that's probably the most common definition of repentance that we have formulated as a church, is that it's more than just feeling sorry about something, but it's about showing the result of that by reversing course or reversing direction or reversing action that you've already taken. To say that I really am repenting of this, remember it has a re in it, you know, like you're doing something different, uh, rather than just saying I feel very bad about what's happened. And I think that's where most of us stop, like we go, ah, I feel really, really bad about that, and then we just move forward. And that sounds a lot more like what's going on here. It does imply an action. I think that's probably something that we would all support. All right, let's keep going. Good comments. Starting in verse 11. This is Jesus before Pilate. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. Notice that response is the same one that he gave to trial that he had before the Jewish leaders when they asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the living God? He's kind of saying, yes, it is as you say, kind of a bad rendering. Most people agree in the NIV. It's really more like you have said it or your own words say it. He's kind of throwing it back like you are saying it right now. In fact, in this particular instance, it's a present tense, like you are saying it. Now, why would Pilate say the king of the Jews? I mean, that wasn't really what he was there for. Remember, they brought him for blasphemy because he claimed that he was, the, he was God himself, that he was going to ride on the clouds of heaven, that he was going to sit at the right hand of the Father. That's the charge of blasphemy. But as many of you know, Pilate doesn't really care about Jewish laws or blasphemy. He's gotta, if he's going to find a way to execute him, he's got to execute him on some sort of political charge. And that's why the question has changed here. Are you the king of the Jews? Because if you say you're the king of the Jews... Well, we know that Caesar is king, so you're making a rebellious statement. Now you're part of an insurrection of some kind, and we can hang you as a rebel. And that's really what we can do here. So that's why the question changes to, are you the king of the Jews? Jason. Um, and it may not have changed entirely that much because Caesar was regarded as God also. And kings are often associated as being deities or half deities or whatever. So... Now, is it wrong to say that Jesus is the king of the Jews? Not by Pilate, but I mean just by us. If we say, is, is, it, is that just like, did Pilate misunderstand? Is he just looking for a convenient way to execute him? I mean, that's probably true for Pilate. Like, he doesn't care. I, I could find something like, oh, you're, so you're the king of the Jews? Great, I can get you on that. Saying that you're the son of the living God or that you're, gonna ride, you're the son of man, I don't really understand that. But are you saying you're the king of the Jews? Yeah, I can work with that. But the irony you're going to find out over this course is that that's exactly who Jesus is. And so there's this irony going on where the charges that are going to be hurled at him, the insults, are actually true. But most people are hurling at, them at him in these insults in a way that they're taunting him with them, not knowing that the very words they speak are very true. And this is almost a deliberate device that Matthew uses. And it kind of also echoes back to the Messianic prophecies because... Many people said many things they didn't have any clue would have relevance to the Messiah in the future, and the gospel writers seem to always reach back to them later on and say, you probably didn't even understand what you were saying back then, but this applies to what's happening right now. Yes? I often wonder, though, because especially like Jewish tradition and how they pass history down and were really obsessed with keeping like record of your family and what tribe you came from and all that, how no one would have realized that he was related to like King David or like that that was his bloodline. Like how did they not, how did they lose track of that like fact? I just don't understand. You know, I don't know this for sure, but it's possible that there might've been 500 King, you know, descendants. Yeah. I mean, his lineage went one way. I mean, who knows, right? I don't know. And that may not have been so significant until the gospel writers sat down to do the genealogy to establish its significance. Right. Uh, and there is a lot of work you're going to see that Matthew and others do to try to go back in time and establish things to show that. Right. 
It seems like in, in my reading, they're doing it after the fact, not before. They're not trying to write a gospel that goes, okay, then what's he supposed to be like? And then write the gospel. They're actually writing the gospel and then starting to go back through independent sources that seem to have come to them saying, hey, remember, and they go, oh, we've got to work that in somewhere because that's true. Because that's, you'll see in a moment the same thing. We're going to come to Psalms 22 in just a second. So let's keep pushing forward. We got the, now we've got the charge of king of the Jews. When he was accused by the chief priest and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, do you hear how many things they are accusing you of? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Now it was the governor's custom at the feast to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked him, which do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew it was out of envy that they had handed Jesus over to him. Let's work backwards. He knew it was out of envy. Who? The leaders he believed, Pilate believed, were envious. And they were trying to find a way to get rid of this person who the crowds were following because they wanted the crowds to follow them. Philip. Um, sort of a different thing with the, uh, when Jesus gave no answer and the pilot asked him what he did, like, could Jesus make a reply? And that's in the previous part as well. I'm not really sure the exact meaning of that because obviously he didn't reply at least a little bit, like a verse four where it said Jesus replied and Jesus replied to them, same thing. Like, so he, he did reply to a single charge at the very least, so I'm not sure like, denying these charges. It was, he was not defending himself. Actually, he gave no answer which is going to trouble you. Literally rendered would be, he spoke no word. And you're saying, but he just said, it is as you say, right? But there seems to be a chronological step with the word when. So it's during the time that the charges are being made, Jesus remains totally silent, okay? Now, if you want to trouble yourself even more, you'll have to look at the other gospel accounts, because in one of the gospel accounts, he actually has a dialogue with Pilate about truth. All right. But again, most people look at that and say, look, Matthew is trying to move quickly through the story. In fact, in, in some gospel accounts, he has a discussion with Pilate. He's flogged, then he's brought back again. Matthew just moves through it. He's trying to get to the crucifixion. But it's during the part that they're making accusations that he makes no defense. And the reason some people note that it's so important to Pilate is because in Roman law, being undefended or defending yourself where you have no defense it was not something they took lightly. They would ask you three times at least to deny the charges. And if you were still silent, then they would assume that you were guilty. They wouldn't do it right off the bat. So there seems to be some precedent for why you would even mark that he gave no answer. Okay? But, of course, Matthew is referring back to a prophecy that Morgan put up on the screen for us that he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Same kind of prophecy kind of tying back to Isaiah. Let's look at something else that's going on here. Just interesting thing that you read when you read all this stuff. Like I've, for, forever I've looked at these verses and I always thought that Barabbas was the guy's name, right? So it turns out, I mean, I should have known this. I mean, this is something I, I even can understand. It, Bar Abbas means like the son of Abbas. That's what, we, that's what his name is. So he's just the son of Abbas. But in the oldest manuscripts that we have, it turns out that just ironically his name is Jesus as well because Jesus is a common name. So in the oldest manuscript, something that freaks some people out is, and, and even all the way dating back to origin, he was trying to refute this. His name is Jesus Barabbas. And then there's Jesus who is called the Christ. And that's why this insertion is here. But apparently some people got troubled by the fact that his name was Jesus too, so they took it out at some point. They kind of just thought that that was just too much to call this other guy, this thief and this criminal Jesus. So there's this irony also in Pilate asking, which one do you want me to release to you? Jesus bar Abbas or Jesus who is called the Christ? And the people have to kind of debate. Now, if you want to really read into it, there's like a paragraph on end about, you know, this and how it got taken out and why and all this stuff. But one of the more interesting things about that, too, is just that even like bar Abbas sounds like it sounds like son of God, because you guys know Abba Father, right? The same kind of root is there. So... If you're hard of hearing and you're at the back of this crowd, you know, you like, you probably, you might have heard a choice. Like, so who do you want me to release? Jesus, the son of God, or Jesus, the Christ? And I'm like, uh, I don't know. I can't figure it out. Like, could you repeat the choice again? Like, okay, I'm going to say it one more time. Jesus, the son of God, or Jesus, the Christ? Like, is this a trick question? Ah, uh, dang it. And, and 
That's a little literary criticism humor, I guess, that are in the commentaries. I don't know. Jason. I find it interesting that some of Jesus' followers um, and also well, and then the Romans thought that Jesus was there to liberate the Jews from Rome, from Roman occupation. Um, and then either by Pilate's choice or by the people's choice, because in another account, they choose Barabbas without any, like, they just choose him. Um, Barabbas is an insurrectionist. He's someone who is challenging the Roman occupation. So he, they basically choose the person who they want, the person who is trying to liberate them from Rome, rather than the person they thought would and disappointed them. Sure. And, and you're, you're onto something really good because the messianic expectation, not scripturally, although you could derive it from there, but through the tradition and the interpretation in all the years that had followed, especially by the time you get to the first century where it's in, like, in full fruition, was that you would get both a political leader and someone who's going to rebuild the temple. Right? You're going to get somebody who was kind of both. And so if they're looking at Jesus... And the Palm Sunday we think about today about how they, you know, escorted him into the city. But now he's on trial for his life. They're probably thinking, this can't be the guy, you know. What about this other guy who seems like he's a rebel and an insurrectionist? Maybe that's the person that we're looking for. The other one doesn't seem like he wants that kind of kingdom. How do we know that he's an insurrectionist? Barabbas? Yeah. The, the word that's used to describe him in another gospel is, is a word that, that means more than robber or murder. It actually usually means like rebel or insurrectionist. In fact, when we get to the thieves in a moment, they weren't just like typical thieves. You didn't crucify a thief. Usually those words were also people who engaged in violent rebellion or insurrection as well as part of their crimes. That's why they're being crucified. Okay? So, yeah, it's a good observation. When Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. Just think for a moment that Pilate's wife might have even dreamed of this. We know that God speaks in dreams, and we know that throughout the Gospels we have that recorded that he speaks in dreams. Maybe this was legitimate, but no one was listening. Yeah, even that, like, because, because there's recorded places that God speaks in dreams. But, like, if Jesus is here giving himself no defense, basically saying, like, okay, he wants this to happen, why would God send a dream saying, hey, try and make it not happen? Like, it just seems very... Well, you're going to see that even in Pilate's actions at a moment, that he wants to let him go. A lot of people historically have looked at Pilate. He was a very weak procurator. Okay? He was always trying to walk this thin line between pleasing Rome and pleasing the Jews because if he had, a, like if he had an uprising, he'd get sacked by Rome because he was just kind of a lower-level procurator guy. And being placed in Judea was not like the best station. That's like being sent to Siberia, basically. Right? <laughs> so he was already kind of not in favor. So there was this whole issue of trying to please both. But yeah, I think that what's happening in these things that you're pointing out is that there are all these chances for this not to happen, and yet it's going to happen. And I believe that that's another one of those tensions we have in Scripture where like, we know the ending, we know the outcome. It's been ordained since before time. And yet there's all these chances it could have changed, but it's not going to. Even with these signs coming in now, do I know for sure? Does this mean that I support the idea that God sent that dream? No, but Matthew seems to record it in such a way that you think, that's kind of a weird fact to record if it was just, you know, like, maybe she just had a dream. You know, maybe she just was troubled by the whole idea and thought, hey, there's a good man. I hear he does good things, and now we're going to kill him. Maybe she was just troubled by that. Maybe it was just an anxiety dream. All right, but either way, you'll see that Pilate has a chance. She has a chance. The Jewish leaders have a chance. Even Jesus has a chance to come down off the cross, but he's not going to do it. It's just going to happen. All right, and that's very important to watching this march forward. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? Asked the governor. I mean, isn't that obvious? Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus who is called Christ, Pilate asked. They all answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, 
But then instead an uproar was starting, there's Pilate worried about some sort of uproar that's going to lead to some sort of violence. It's going to look badly for him. He took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I'm innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. Or more literally, it's on you. It's up to you. All the people answered, let his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Now, it'd be kind of hard to skip that one line that says, and all the people answered, let his blood be on us and on our children. That for a long time has been the source of a lot of controversy, but it's in the book of Matthew. You guys remembered that uh, Mel Gibson, when he was doing Passion of the Christ, had a lot of problem with a lot of Jewish groups because he had kind of included similar language like this, and they had tried to reach a compromise where it would be stated in the Aramaic in the movie, but it wouldn't be translated into English. I think it's still in the movie in Aramaic. But this is a statement that Matthew records. I want to be clear, though, this let his blood be on us, and actually literally says his blood on us and on our children. There's no B in there. They don't have that. Sorry, his blood on us and our children was meant to say, yes, we'll take responsibility for it. Like he's saying, it's your responsibility. Not like, hey, forever and ever, we have answered on behalf of all Jews who ever lived that it's our fault that Christ died. That's not what it says. The meaning in the context in which it's written is, he's saying it's your responsibility, and they're saying, fine, we'll take responsibility for his crucifixion. In a legal way. But of course, Matthew is really tilting the scales here. Matthew is trying to make Pilate look innocent, washing his hands and walking away, weak as that might be, and he's trying to put the blame squarely on the Jewish leaders. But it would be a little bit strange for Matthew to go too far. After all, Matthew, whoever wrote, is probably Jewish. Jesus is Jewish. All the disciples are Jewish. Everybody's Jewish. I mean, it sounds a little bit weird to be splitting hairs like this, but he is trying to make it clear that the people, and the people in that verse imply the people of Israel, not just the crowd, but the people of Israel, the chosen of God, say, it's our responsibility. Pilate, don't worry about it. We'll take care of it. It's on us. I think it's curious that on Palm Sunday, we celebrate the triumphal entry, right? So the, these throngs of people are so excited. And I mean, it could be tied into the fact that they're looking for like a political liberation, right? And then a, a few days later, they're pissed. <laughs> and they want him crucified. It, it's like, it's just so strange that they're so mad all of a sudden. And it, part of me wonders how many people were there? I mean, I don't know. Uh, uh, how much of it was the priest just inciting the crowd? I mean, how many people were were just that angry that either he wasn't going to fulfill their... I mean, at what point do you switch where you see a guy do a lot of miracles and you really like him and then all of a sudden you're standing there in front of Pilate and you, you know, you want to, you're about to riot. You're so mad that, that you want this guy killed. Um, you know, it, it's strange how quickly it turns on him. There's been a lot of discussion, obviously, about that, right? I mean, that's not been lost on a lot of people who've looked at this in just a few short days. Here, we're talking about five, right? It seems like there's this big switch. And it's possible that everything you said is, is right. They're just soured on the idea of him. He didn't fulfill the expectation. But it does seem fast, right, to go from here and Hosanna, which is, you know, a typical greeting during Passover anyway. I mean, they're kind of, even the palm fronds and all that stuff is kind of, already kind of going on from, for pilgrims arriving in Jerusalem, but at this point it's like getting to a, a frenzied level. So the theories are, is this a different crowd? That's one theory, just different people. Of course the chief priest might have had something to do with it. Rumors maybe have already spread about what he said about the temple. You know, I'm going to destroy, the, the temple will be destroyed and I'll rebuild it, or that he's done certain things in the temple, that's possible. Rumors of the trial may have spread that he's blasphemed the Lord by, you know, maybe they were willing to receive him as whatever they think a Messiah is, but the fact that rumors are spreading that he's actually said that he's God, you know, and he's another false Messiah, we need to get rid of him. I mean, it's the best reading of this that I could find is that the chief priests didn't go around paying people money to do this, as some of us have imagined. Um, 
or just brought in a whole crowd that was sympathetic to them. They might have had a hand to do that. But it seemed like all the people and the crowd keeps getting repeated here that it's not just the Jewish leaders who are inciting people, but the people have turned. And maybe it is because the Jewish leaders told them, like, hey, we were there at the trial. He said he was God. You may not have heard this, but the chief priest ripped his robe. It was that bad. And you could see that in that kind of you know, crowd, like it's spreading. Like this guy, well, I don't, we don't know what he's done. Maybe he's done some good things. But to claim that he's God, that's probably going too far. Now, that's sheer speculation on my part. But if I were to incite a crowd, that's probably what I would tell him. And get these guys so fired up and so angry that you know, no matter what he says or what you've heard about him, this guy claims that he's God. I think, I think we have to do Israel a service by killing him. Okay. Yeah. I have a question on when it says, let his blood be on us and, and our children. Could that be a prophecy where his blood, we are redeemed by his blood? No, it really, when you say his blood, it means like the responsibility for killing him is on us. That's really what it means. They're not taking it in any way that we would use the word blood later. Um, and the, the reference to our children is almost like that's how seriously we take it. But just to be clear again, other people have interpreted that our children means in every generation thereafter, and that's not what's going on here. They're just basically saying, like, we'll take responsibility, his blood on us and our children. And Matthew may have included our children to kind of remind people that Jesus said that before this generation passes away, even these children, this whole city's going to be destroyed. So he might be just throwing that in there as a, another reference of, like, you know, one generation, you know, or this current young generation, or whatever it is. But Either way, that's where it is. And it's been the source of a lot of anti-Semitic feelings for, for the centuries. Uh, we won't go into a whole history lesson of that, but you know, just study the Inquisition if you want. You know, just take any, study any part of church history. <laughs> like, it doesn't matter. Just go and put your finger there, and you'll find that you know, this verse has probably contributed to a lot of problems. Okay? But we should properly understand it in the context it's given. Pilate is a coward. He doesn't want to take responsibility for the life of an innocent man. The crowd who are demanding his death they're going to take it for him just so that they can get this over with and get it done. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and they wove a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand and knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him, and they led him away to crucify him. There's the charge again that they think is so funny, king of the Jews. So you're a king. You've seen that over and over in dramatic portrayals. And yet the irony is, that's exactly what he is. The irony is all the mockery is 100% true. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon. And they forced him to carry the cross. Just an interesting note, the fact that Simon of Cyrene is actually noted means that Matthew must have known who this guy is. It's very possible that after he did this random act of carrying the cross, he might have joined the believers or his name became famous just because of his act. Because otherwise it would be strange to know the guy's name who was just picked out of a crowd at random to walk through the streets and carry the cross for a short distance. So just something interesting as we go through it. So they meet Simon of Cyrene and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered him wine to drink, mixed with gall. But after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right, one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. There's another charge that he, that the Messiah was known in Jewish tradition as somebody who would come to rebuild and remake the temple. So they're hurling it at him as an insult because they heard him say it, not even understanding that the temple he was referring to was himself. He will rise in three days. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God. And the irony is, he is. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the robbers who were crucified with him also heaped insults 
on him. Yes, very good point. You said both of them. This is another example where Matthew is moving through the story pretty quickly, whereas other gospel writers pause to note that later, one of the thieves, robbers, maybe even insurrectionists, depending on how you read the language, who is on the other side of him begins to say, hey, wait a minute, why are we going after this guy? And that's the one that's welcomed into paradise, okay? So yes, that's one of, it's a good point to stop because if you know the story pretty well, you'd know it's like, wait a minute, I thought one of them was good and one of them was bad. Well, they're actually both bad, that's why they're being crucified. But, <laughs> but, um, but one of them starts to realize his badness and maybe has a true sign of repentance. Now I know we're reading a lot of scripture tonight, but if you bear with me, I'd like to read a little bit more. If you have a Bible, I want you to turn over to Matthew, I'm sorry, Psalm 22, and if you don't, just listen. Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from me, so far from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, and am not silent. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One, you are the praise of Israel. And you, our fathers, put their trust. They trusted you, and you delivered them. They cried to you and were saved. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast upon you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions tearing their prey, opening their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax, it has melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O my strength, come quickly to help me. A lot of people, when they read the account of the crucifixion that Matthew records, can't help but trip over Psalm 22. In fact, even his choice of using hurl insults and the notation of the casting lots for the clothing cite right back to Psalm 22. Now, there's a lot of controversy over messianic prophecies. David, when he was writing the psalm, did he know that he was predicting something that was going to happen to Messiah? Was he speaking metaphorically to him? We don't have any instances in Scripture where anybody was casting lots for David's clothing. We don't have any instances in Scriptures where his hands and feet were pierced. But did he know what he was doing? Was God just putting a song in his mouth? And what about Jesus on the cross? As we move forward for just a moment, let's see how Jesus recalls this, it seems. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means in Aramaic, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he is calling Elijah. Eloi, my God. Like imagine for a moment a song that you sing in worship sometimes and it has words that mean something to you. Maybe, just maybe, Jesus knew Psalm 22 really well. Maybe he knew it well that it pointed to him, but maybe he just captured what he was feeling at the moment. And he cited the first line, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Sure, I'm, I, throughout the centuries, people have said that at this moment, Jesus felt forsaken, that it was this moment, perhaps, we've developed a theology around it, that maybe it was at this moment that he felt the full weight of the sin that was being put upon him by the Father. Maybe the Father really did turn away because of that. That's just stuff that's been put onto this, and our theological interpretations are trying to make sense of what Jesus is saying. And I don't want to take it too far, but it doesn't seem so far-fetched to think that he could actually be citing the very psalm that either spoke to him or that he felt the most at that moment. Yes, 
People encircle me. They hurl insults at me. They're casting lots for my clothing. They've pierced me. And yet I can count all my bones. An indication, again, where Jesus' legs were not broken on the cross. But people around him misunderstood and said, he's calling out to Elijah, which is interesting because Elijah is also a messianic figure that was supposed to come as a precursor to Christ. And we've seen Matthew point to Elijah numerous times, including saying John the Baptist was Elijah to come, if you will accept it. Again, the thirst analogies. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a stick, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now we will leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. Most people looking at it say that the drink that was being offered to him was kind of a way to numb the pain, not to take away the thirst. Or it could even be a poison to hasten his death. Yes, Brittany. I would feel like, oh my God, my God, why are you forsaking me? I think um, I was wondering about there's kind of a tradition surrounding that where that was kind of like a comfort type of well, psalm that people in life before they died or something would recite, I think, in some Jewish traditions. If you read the rest of Psalm 22, it is one of the happiest endings to the Psalms. It has a very uplifting and victorious result. It may be the reason some people said that he's citing the parts of the suffering, because that's what he's going through then, but hoping to call into mind all the great hope that comes later. So that's probably the way it was interpreted. Others, in fairness, say that's probably saying too much for what he was doing. He was probably just saying, like, this is what I'm experiencing right now. And the easiest shorthand way of doing it is to almost, I would say, sing the first line of something that you're really thinking and feeling at the time. You know, the way some of, I mean, I've done that. There's certain songs that we sing that every once in a while when I'm just feeling something, like I'll just sing that one line in my head or even out loud because that's almost like I'm claiming that whole song. It's kind of what I'm going through. I would be stepping too far to say that's exactly what he was doing, but that's certainly one of the greater interpretations of what he was doing, either this is what I'm feeling, or this is the psalm that I'm fulfilling scripture again. Um, and again, people looked and say, you know, Jesus can't control that they're casting lots for his clothing or that they didn't break his bones or all those things. So, you know, if you're interested more in the Messianic prophecies, there's actually on our website two talks that we did about them, about Jewish objections to the Messianic prophecies and how you find them and what they are. You can look those up. But I just want to tie in good reading for that on Palm Sunday. Now, if you think it's weird that God, knowing everything, could in the Old Testament tell David some things that are going to happen later. That's nothing compared to this passage. So if you're freaked out about the Messianic prophecies that God, being all-knowing, could actually tell people in advance what he's going to do, that's not freaky. This is a little bit freaky. Let's read from 51 to 56. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn from top to bottom. What curtain? It could be the curtain that separates the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple, meaning that God was ripping apart that very part and saying that, you know, God now dwells completely or there's no need for the temple anymore, something that was big in Matthew's recitation. It could be the one also, there was another curtain that separated the Jewish section of the temple from the Gentile courts. So maybe he was just saying, again, there's a symbol there that now it's open to everybody. We don't know. But just the fact that the curtain tore is meant to be kind of an ominous sign. The earth shook and the rocks split. The tombs broke open and bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. That by itself. So if you're going to come to me with problems about the messianic prophecies or what does this mean or why would God do this, like, just take that line. Let's just deal with that one again. The tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs. And after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. Now, just for the people who are really into detail, there's a question, it's a chronology here, because where it says there's a comma, they came out of the tombs, uh, an NIV rendering of it. Actually, originally it would just say they came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection. There's no and and there's no comma. So it could be that it happened after the resurrection. But it's a good story if it's happening while he's on the cross. You know, like, wouldn't you want it, like, while he's on the cross, as he's dying to go, Rah! like, just people come out of tombs and darkness happens and earthquakes. and You know, Matthew is clearly trying to paint a very, very kind of stark picture of how this points to the fact that these people might have done the wrong thing. When the centurion and all of those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. 
Many women were there watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Yose, or John, and the mother of the Zebedee sons. So the women are witnesses as well to what's going on. Surely he was the son of God, if that bothers you, that like Roman centurions would suddenly get that so easily. Another way of saying that would be surely he was the... He was loved by his father or some other, maybe there may have been another way of saying it, but the actual way that Matthew writes it is, surely he was the son of God. Okay? Another gospel actually says, surely he was a righteous man. As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock, he rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb, and he went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. Commentators point out the fact that Mary was watching. Two Marys were watching where it was. It makes it clear that they didn't go to the wrong tomb on Sunday. They kind of knew where it was. I, mean, I don't know if that adds much to it, but Matthew seems to indicate that there was people watching exactly what tomb, and probably Joseph's tomb was pretty well known since he was a rich man. Joseph initially, is, by the way, is a member of the Sanhedrin, so he himself is one of the Jesus' disciples, but also one of the leaders of Israel. The next day, the one after preparation day, which is Friday, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remembered that while he was still alive, the deceiver said, after three days I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he's been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate asked. Go make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting a guard. Matthew wants to make clear here at the end that there's been preparations made to combat what was probably already starting to circulate at the time as to reasons that Jesus rose from the dead. Maybe they went to the wrong tomb Maybe the disciples stole the body. Remember, Matthew's writing anywhere from 30, 40 years later. So already these stories are starting to circulate. And we see in another gospel already that they were trying to circulate them. So he's trying to at least do whatever he can to put an end to those by showing certain things like, look, they had a guard. They put a seal on it. That's a very serious thing. You couldn't break that seal or you couldn't get around it without basically defying the authority of the person who put the seal. And the women saw where it was, and we know who it was. It was Joseph of Arimathea, somebody we know, somebody who's known to Israel and its leaders. This is not just another false witness. You could question that person. He's a member of the Sanhedrin. So those are kind of ways that Matthew's trying to at least, if you will, put a nail in the coffin on some of those theories. No pun intended. So he's trying to write, just wrap that up in the end. And then that concludes chapter 27. Next week, we finish up with chapter 28 on Easter. Any other questions or comments about what we just skimmed through? Yeah. Um, in the other Gospels, is it talking more about when all these people were raised from the dead and started wandering around? It's the only place we see it is in Matthew. There's a couple details that only Matthew includes, and that's one of them. Kind of like the one where you go, could you elaborate a little bit more on that part? Because, you know, that, that seems like, uh, you know, like we have the whole Lazarus thing, which is kind of cool, but, you know, like this is, this is a little crazy. Yeah. I assume there's not like, um, is there any non-gospels that like mention, hey, at this one point, it seemed like a lot of dead people came back like, <laughs> like, That would seem to make the news, right? Yeah. I don't know of any extra scriptural sources that actually talk about that, that I know of. In fact, and the reason I think that's probably true is because the commentaries will note numerous places where extra scriptural sources support some of these things. Like even the idea that there was a large debate for a long time about would, was there even a custom to let one prisoner go at Passover? And people debunked that left and right. And actually one guy went and did exhaustive research and said, yes, this actually did occur from time to time. And there is extra scriptural support, you know, things that are outside the Bible that show that in history this did happen from time to time. So it isn't crazy to believe that this story could have happened. But on this point, uh, I didn't see anything. And it, it is like a couple, it's like two Two phrases, right? And yet, we just want more. And it's just not, it's not there. Do they die again later? Well, one of the debates that happens, and the reason we even noted about the whole comment about 
the tombs, comma, and, you know, like why that's there and not there, is because Paul basically makes the case that Jesus is the first, like, to be resurrected. And that's why people go back and say, no, 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 really this implies that after Jesus' resurrection this happened, not while he was on the cross. So they go back and forth. But either way, in part of that debate, there was the other debate, which is did they die again or were they actually, like, literally resurrected and, and after hanging out with their friends for all, like, went up? <laughs> or, or, yeah, like, what happened? And so... I figured it was probably too much for us, you know, like, if you're really interested in George Romero and zombie stuff and you want to add this in there too, like, we can have, have like, a whole, like, he could make his own movie about the crucifixion. Like, move over Mel Gibson, we could have the zombie version, you know? Like, you know, two minutes about Jesus and, like, 90 minutes about those people coming out of the tombs, you know? It's totally scriptural. It's totally scriptural. We're not even embellishing, you know? We're not even adding to it. This week... And it comes up every year, so we can make Holy Week a routine. Some of you have been fasting for Lent. Some of you did the Ash Wednesday service that we did. Some of you haven't done anything yet. It's not too late. It's Palm Sunday. If you think about this week and take time, you could either read through scriptural accounts. In the past, we've done a chronological step-by-step of what Jesus has done. Something I've done in years past is just go rent one of those movies. I would recommend maybe Jesus of Nazareth, Passion of the Christ. Just, just to get reconnected with the story on an emotional level for a second. Maybe it's something that you do on Monday, Thursday. Thursday where Jesus gives the great commandment of loving one another like the mandamus. Or Friday, Good Friday. New Song is having a, a Good Friday service at 7 o'clock. If some of you want to go, maybe just to spend time. One tradition I've done in the past is to fast all day Friday till after sundown, just as a, a, like kind of a recollection or a spiritual discipline of the fact that today is the day that Jesus was suffering the most and on the cross, and that you know the least I can do is kind of be reminded of that by fasting the whole day and just kind of thinking through it during the day. Some people just don't even go to work. Whatever it is that you're going to do this week, just don't let it just be another week. And it does come up every year, and the challenge is not to make it a routine, but just think this year. What are all these passages we've been going through mean? What's the whole thing mean as we kind of conclude Matthew? And then on Sunday next week, we'll celebrate Easter together and do communion and kind of wrap up this whole study we've been doing of Matthew. Let's pray and close up and meditate for a moment on this Holy Week. Lord, you died a horrific death, but that's not the focus that makes the crucifixion such a central part of Christianity. It's the fact that as they hurled insults on you, Lord, you could have come down. Tempted as you were throughout your entire time on earth. As the devil first tempted you to show your power. As you even said to the disciples that you could call upon legions of angels. And as you stood suffering, scourged, then crucified, dying, blameless that that temptation was always present. As you felt forsaken by the Father, that temptation was always present because you had the power. The very insults hurled at you, so ironic. You had the power to end it all, to come down. So this week during Holy Week, Lord Jesus, I reflect most on the fact that you voluntarily took this place of suffering that you voluntarily submitted to the Father's will from before time. That finding equality with God, not something to be taken advantage of, you came and gave your life as a ransom for me. All of us, Lord, deserve death. You did not. And we praise you that you withstood everything for us. May we find the courage to also do the same to others, even laying down our life. Pray this in your name. Amen.